Well, have you had a good week so far? It sure is a blessing being alive, isn't it? When you really think about it, it's the greatest blessing that we can have is to be alive. And uh, the Lord is so good. He provides everything that we need, not only for our physical life, but also for our spiritual life. And tonight we want to talk about our spiritual life, one of the aspects of our spiritual life. And so let's get right into our subject. Our subject of study is how to pray. Now, I have read many books on prayer, and I have read many definitions on prayer. And I'd like to share with you four of my favorite definitions of prayer based on my own prayer experience. The first one, the one I like the best, is that prayer is the breath of the soul. Prayer is the breath of the soul. What that means is that as you cannot live without breathing physically, you cannot live without breathing spiritually. And prayer is that breath. You know, we said in a previous lecture that food is God's word as we study it. You know, you can live several days without food, but you can only live a few minutes without breathing. And so prayer is one of the indispensable elements, perhaps the indispensable element of spiritual life. Another definition which I like of prayer is that prayer is when the weak arm of man grabs on to the omnipotent hand and arm of God. When our limited resources are combined with God's limitless resources, when the weakness of man takes hold of the strength of God. Another one which I like is prayer is the key in the hand of faith that opens heaven's storehouse. In other words, heaven is like a storehouse, and with the key of faith, through prayer, we open that storehouse, and God is able to pour out His blessings abundantly upon us. And then there's probably... Uh, my second most favorite after the breath of the soul, and that is prayer is like speaking with God as you would speak with a friend. Now, how did Jesus look at prayer? What were the habits of Jesus in connection with prayer? What conditions did Jesus lay down that we need to meet in order for our prayers to be answered? I'd like to share with you this evening several principles that our Lord Jesus gave and which are also found in other portions of Scripture on how to get our prayers answered. The first thing that I would like to deal with is the best time and place to pray. Now, obviously, we can pray anywhere. Do you know some of the best prayer experiences that I have uh, are when I'm riding my bike in the morning. I ride my bike for about a half an hour. I used to do 10 miles uh, five days a week. Now I do five miles seven days a week. And uh, I have my little loop there. It's a mile long. I go around five times. And during the times that I'm going around, I'm able to reflect on spiritual things. I'm able to pray to the Lord. Another of my favorite times to pray is when I'm studying God's Word. And I do quite a bit of that. Some of you come to the office here and you'll... Uh, see me in the fellowship hall with books all over the table, 
And at certain times when I get to a place where I cannot go any further, I can't understand what I'm studying, or I'm at a, uh, at a point where I can't understand a certain issue, I raise a little prayer to God. And it's amazing how frequently God is right there ready to give me a clear way and to explain what I am not able to understand at that particular moment. Now let's take a look at the best moments that Jesus chose for prayer. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 35. Mark, chapter 1 and verse 35. Uh, the best time to pray is not in a public service. It's not when you're surrounded by the hustle and bustle of life. Jesus chose a particular time and place to pray. Now notice Mark, chapter 1 and verse 35. It says, Now in the morning... Having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And this isn't the only time that we find this concept in the Gospels. Notice here that it tells us the two favorite uh, things, uh, or the favorite place and the favorite time that Jesus chose to pray. What was the favorite place? It says a solitary place. And what was his favorite time? Early in the morning, it says, in fact, in verse 35, that it was a long while before daylight. Now, why do you suppose Jesus chose uh, this particular time and this particular place to pray? Because at this time, everything is quiet. Everything is tranquil. You can concentrate on what you're saying. And you can also hear the voice of God more clearly speaking to you. And so... Uh, the best prayer life that we can have is not the prayers that we utter in church or the prayers that are uttered in public. The best prayers, the best experience in prayer is in a solitary place early in the morning. And by the way, the Lord Jesus also prayed in the evening after everybody had gone to bed. So his favorite times were early in the morning before everybody got up and also in the evening uh, after everyone had gone to bed. In fact, let's read... Uh, Matthew chapter 14 and verse 23, which refers to, uh, to this experience of Jesus in the evening. It says there in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 23, it says, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was what? He was alone there. Let's also notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6. Here he's giving counsel to us. We've already noticed two verses where it refers to Jesus' favorite time and favorite place to pray. But now let's notice his counsel to us. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6. Jesus says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In other words, the best prayer that we can have is in our room, by ourselves, when we speak to our Heavenly Father. And this brings us to our second point. Whenever we pray, according to Jesus, we need to pray to God as our Father. You remember the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, you will pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. 
And as you go through the Gospels, you will find that time and time and time again, the Lord Jesus addresses God as his Father. Now, let me qualify something. Unfortunately, in this world, many of us, and I'm not speaking of, of myself, but I'm speaking corporately because I had a very, very good father. Praise the Lord, I have a wonderful mother. But uh, some fathers have abused their children and mistreated their children. And unfortunately, the image that we have our, of our earthly father is usually the image that we also have of our heavenly father. Because as we see our earthly father, we see in him a reflection of our heavenly father. That's the reason why if we have a father who is very stern, a father who is abusive, we will have the same concept basically of our heavenly father. But when we address our heavenly father as father, we need to remember that he is the perfect father. He's not like our earthly fathers who are prone to mistakes, who are prone to sin, who are prone to not be perfect in their fatherhood, God is the perfect Father. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 6, and let's read several verses here regarding our prayers to God as our Father. You'll notice the number of times that Jesus tells us that we're supposed to pray to the Father. Notice verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father. Notice who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in the secret place, will reward you openly. Notice verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. And then verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. Verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are only just a few verses in Matthew chapter 6. But if you go through the rest of the Gospels, you will find that the Lord Jesus constantly taught us to call God our heavenly Father. In fact, he not only taught us to do it, but he practiced it himself. For example, if you go to John chapter 17, several verses there, you'll, you'll find that the Lord Jesus addresses God as, O Father. Sometimes he calls him in his prayer, Holy Father. And sometimes he refers to him as Righteous Father. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are supposed to call on earth no man our father, speaking of religious leaders. Because one is your Father, Jesus says, your Father who is in heaven. There is no evidence, folks, in the Bible that we are supposed to pray to Jesus. It's very common today for people to say, dear Jesus. There's no evidence in the Bible that we are supposed to pray to the Holy Spirit. The Bible uniformly tells us that we are supposed to address God as Father. We are to begin our prayers by saying, Father in heaven, or our Father, because our prayers are directed to Him. Now, it doesn't mean that we exclude Jesus from our prayers. We're going to notice towards the end of our study tonight that we always pray in Jesus' name. But we're not going to come to that point yet. Now, another condition that we need to meet in order for our prayers to be answered, besides addressing God as our Father, is that when we pray, we need to pray with full realization of our great need. 
You know, Psalm 139 and verses 1 to 4 tell us that God knows everything about us before we were even born. He knows when we're going to get up. He knows where we're going. He's going he knows when we're going to lie down. He knows everything before we were even born. And so you say, if he knows everything, why do we pray? The reason why we pray is because we want to show our absolute dependence upon God as our Father. We want to show our humility, the recognition that we are creatures, that we have a great need. That's the main purpose for prayer. It's not to manipulate God into doing something for us. The purpose of prayer is to show our absolute and complete dependence upon God as our Father, as a little child depends on his Father. Now notice the beautiful parable that we have illustrating this point. Maybe it's not so beautiful in a certain sense. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, but it's beautiful because it teaches a beautiful truth. Notice Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Here Jesus uh, gives the famous parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Let's start at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Do you remember what we studied last time? What were the Pharisees like? Outside. Were they pretty good outside? Oh, they had a wonderful external religion. How were they inside? Serious problems. Rotten, I heard the word. Yes. Now notice verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. See, when you don't feel your need, who are you praying with? Yourself. Because prayer basically means you're praying to God as Father because you feel a great need. Something that only your Heavenly Father can supply. And so it says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Did this man feel any need? No, he felt he had it all. So why would he pray to God? He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. Now what about the tax collector? Verse 13, And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Did the publican recognize, did the tax collector recognize his infinite need of God and of God's righteousness? Yes, and when we pray, we must come in humility to God to show our dependence upon him. In verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, which means forgiven, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, this makes me remember also Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, although it's not in the Gospels. You know, he had this wonderful view of a holy God. He saw the heavenly sanctuary, and the heavenly sanctuary was shaking, and the voices of the angels were heard singing, Holy, holy, holy. And the Bible tells us that Isaiah reacted by saying, I am undone. I have unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. I'm nothing. And God says, when you recognize that you're nothing, then I can make you something. And so God sends an angel from the heavenly altar, the altar of incense, with a piece of coal, and touches the lips of Isaiah 
and through cleansing his lips, he cleanses Isaiah in his totality from sin because Isaiah recognized that he in himself was absolutely nothing. So we must come with a sense of absolute dependence upon our Heavenly Father if we would want our prayers answered. Now, another point that we need to recognize is that the purpose of prayer is not to exhibit our magnificent oratorical talents. Because some people, I'll tell you, they'll kneel down and they'll pray up a storm. They'll use such complex phrases and words that the congregation can't even understand them. I'm not even sure that the Lord can understand them. I'm just kidding. The purpose of public prayer is not exhibiting our great oratorical skills. The purpose of public prayer is not to exhibit our tremendous consecration and spirituality. There's the idea that a person who, who uh, is always bent over and appears very humble in public and who's always praying and uses beautiful words in prayer, that that person is much more pious than other people. Now let's notice what Jesus had to say about that. I'm not saying that it's not necessarily so, but I'm saying that it's not absolute proof because the Pharisees were very pious externally. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 6, and let's read verse 5 and also verse 7. It says in verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And what is their reward? The praise of men. And how much is that worth in terms of salvation? Absolutely nothing. They have their reward. And their reward is what? To be exalted by men. So it says here, public prayer to exhibit yourself is worthless. The Pharisees loved to pray that way. Notice verse 7. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. This is the danger of formula prayers. Prayers that have been prepared and written and repeated and repeated. Many times we repeat them and we don't even realize what we're saying. Isn't that true? And so prayer should be spontaneous. It should come from the heart. It should be natural. We should not use vain repetitions. And sometimes I hear people pray uh, in public and they'll repeat the name of God time after time after time. Inadvertently. Have you ever noticed that? They'll say, Lord this, and God that, and Lord this, and Lord, and they'll mention His name over and over again. Do you know that Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7 says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That means to not take the name of the Lord our God and use it unnecessarily. In the Lord's Prayer, the Lord Jesus said, Hallowed be thy name. Do you know what the word hallowed means? It means holy. It means sanctified be your name. We need to be careful about undue familiarity with God. Some people call him daddy. Some people call him pop. I've heard some, some young people call him, Hi, pop. How are you doing? We need to recognize that God, yes, He's our Father, but God needs to be respected. Because besides being our Father, He is the King of the universe. His name is holy. 
He must be recognized as holy in the way that we use his name. Now, another very important point that we need to remember when we pray is that we always pray that God's will will take place. You know, some people say, God never answers my prayers. Let me ask you this. If your kids ask you for some cookies, and you say yes, is that an answer? Sure. What if you say no? Is that an answer too? What if you say maybe? Is that an answer? Yeah. The trouble is when God doesn't say yes, we say he didn't answer. But the fact is that God can also answer no. Because he knows that it's not the best for us. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord Jesus said that we're supposed to pray, Thy will be done. And that's so hard for us, because we know what we want. They are not really felt needs, they're felt wants. And we want to manipulate God into giving us what we want, instead of what we need. But only God really knows what we need. Now let me read Matthew chapter 26, and you can follow along. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39 to illustrate this point. Matthew 26 and verse 39, here Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays this prayer three times, agonizing. Remember, at this point in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is on Thursday night, it's before, on the next day he's going to be taken, uh, and he's going to be crucified. The Lord Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The load of the sin of the world is being placed upon him at that very moment. And he has in his hand the cup of the wrath of God. You say, how do we know that he has the cup? We're going to notice it in a minute. He has in his hand the cup of the wrath of God. And he has to drink that cup. It's the same cup in Revelation. You remember the plagues are in cups or in vials and they're poured out upon the earth. The wrath of God. So Jesus is bearing the wrath of God in your place and mine. He's drinking the cup of God's wrath. He's about to experience the punishment for the sins of the whole world. And he shrunk away from it. He didn't know whether he could do it. Notice verse 39. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, and the Gospel of Luke says that he actually sweated drops of blood. He said, oh, my father. You can just hear him saying this. Oh, my father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as what? But as you will. In other words, Jesus was not going to ask the Father for something which was not convenient for him. And you know something interesting? If we could see the end from the beginning we would have had things exactly the way that God allowed them in our life. The trouble is that we can't see the end from the beginning. We can only see the present moment, so we think we know what's best right now. I can give you a biblical example, Joseph. Remember Joseph? How do you think Joseph fell when he was, felt when he was taken prisoner to Egypt? Did you think that maybe he thought he'd gotten a raw deal? Oh, I think so. Do you think he was homesick for his father and for his brothers? Sure. Do you think he was wondering why God would allow him, a young boy who was consecrated to God, to be taken as a slave unjustly to Egypt? I imagine he had all kinds of misgivings in his mind. Do you think that Joseph looked differently at his experience 
after it happened than when he was taken to Egypt for the first time? Of course! You see, after all of his experience has gone by, he remembers when he was in jail, the dream that the, that the baker had and the dreamer that the cupbearer had, and he remembers all of the experiences he has in Egypt, and he looks back, he says, my, I wouldn't have had it any other way than the way that God established. You see, if we could see the end from the beginning, we would always pray, your will be done, because God, you know better than I do. Notice what it says in the gospel, uh, in 1 John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. Remember, this is the same author as uh, the individual who wrote the gospel of John. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. Still on this point that we need to pray that God's will be done. It says in verse 14, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He what? He hears us. Let me share with you an experience that's just amazing. I have two pastor friends uh, who, um, well, they're both dead now. When I was a kid, I knew them. Pastors in the country of Venezuela. They're very, they were very good friends of my dad's. I grew up in Venezuela. Uh, studied all my primary education there in Spanish and uh, then came back to the U.S., then went back and lived in Colombia for several years uh, as a worker, and then I came back to the United States. But anyway, these two pastors had to go to a, a, a convention on an island state in Venezuela called Margarita. And uh, they had to catch the plane at about 7 o'clock in the morning. It's uh, about an hour and 15-minute drive from the city of Caracas down to uh, sea level where the airport is. They left plenty early, and on the way... They had a flat tire. And when they went and looked in the trunk, there was no jack in the trunk. And so, as they tell, told the story to us, they were constantly looking at the clock, and they saw that the time for the departure of the plane was coming, and they didn't have a jack, and they were trying to wave down traffic, and nobody would stop. They were praying to the Lord, that the Lord would delay the flight or somehow allow them to fix the tire so that they could get there in time because they had to speak at this very important convention. Well, it just so happens that when somebody finally stopped and they fixed the tire, they drove down to the airport, and when they arrived there, the airplane was just taking off. And as one of these pastors tells it, he said, at that moment, I felt that God had not answered our prayer. But do you know what? Ten minutes later, that airplane had crashed into a mountain, and every single person in that plane was killed. You see, sometimes God answers according to His will, not according to our will. Praise the Lord! Because the Lord knew exactly what was going to happen. And so God knows the end from the beginning. Let's trust Him. You know, when somebody gets sick, we pray that we want that person healed. Right now, Lord, we want the person healed. We need to pray, if it be your will, heal that person. Because it, God might, not, might know something that we do not know. Now the next point that I would like us to notice regarding prayer in the concept of Jesus is that we should pray without ceasing. 
with perseverance, without giving up. Notice in the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 18, and uh, verses 1 through 8. A while back I preached a full sermon on this passage. I'm not going to uh, study the whole passage with you, but I want you to notice the lesson that Jesus wanted to teach in this parable. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and we'll quickly read verses 1 through 8. Here it says the following. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. <laughs> so you can imagine this widow coming to this judge. By the way, the judge is a symbol of God. You say, how can this unjust judge who, who said, I'm going to finally answer her because I'm going to get her off my back, how can that represent God? Well, it's very simple. What Jesus is saying is, if a judge answers a widow's plea after she continually comes to him to get her off his back, how much more will God, who is a father and loves us, answer when we come to him? Now notice what he continues saying. Verse 6, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God... Shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? In other words, though he doesn't answer their prayers immediately? And then Jesus asks the question, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? In other words, is he going to find anybody like this widow when he comes? Who has such great faith that she comes and comes and comes and does not give up. The Apostle Paul says that we are supposed to pray without what? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Now, I would like us to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 7 and 8. And let's notice the perseverant prayer of our Lord Jesus. Interestingly enough, here in the book of Hebrews, we have something very interesting about the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says there, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 regarding Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, notice this, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. By the way, did the Father save him immediately from death? Huh? No. In fact, if you compare Psalm 22, verses 1 through 8, you'll find that there we have the prophecy where Jesus is saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I cry to you day and night, and you don't hear me. But I want you to notice that even though Jesus, according to this, offered prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was not saved from death, 
But it does say he was heard because of his what? Of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Notice, even our Lord Jesus learned obedience by the delay. Is it good sometimes for God to delay his answer? Yes, because it teaches us to depend upon God and to trust God and to not release his hand. You know, it reminds me of the experience of Jacob. You remember Jacob, uh, the supplanter? By the way, the name Jacob means the supplanter, one who, who tries to take the place of someone else, the legitimate place of someone else. In fact, he was a supplanter from the time he was born. Because the Bible says that he had latched on to his brother's ankle, trying to be born first, trying to supplant his brother, even though God had said that Esau was going to be born first, and then Jacob was going to be born after that. So he wanted to be the supplanter. And then, of course, uh, later on, the Bible tells us that Jacob stole the birthright from his brother. And his brother got angry, and so Jacob had to flee from home. Now Jacob felt that not only was his brother against him, but that God had forsaken him. After a couple of days of traveling, he laid down with his head on a, on a few rocks at a place that later became called Bethel, the house of God. There's where he had this beautiful dream of the ladder. The ladder that was planted on the earth and reached into the highest heaven, and there were angels ascending and descending upon that ladder which we're going to notice in a few moments, is a symbol or representation of Jesus. In other words, God was telling Jacob, look, Jacob, even though you've blown it, you've sinned against your brother, you've lied to your father, I have not forsaken you. There is still communication between heaven and earth. I am still your intercessor. But do you know that for 20 years, Jacob was not willing to forgive himself? Finally, 20 years later, after working for Laban, who, by the way, was a real nasty character, one of the most nasty people in the whole Bible, Laban. He, was, he did to Jacob what Jacob had done. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There you have the lesson. Jacob reaped deceit. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jacob? You know, he thinks he's going to get this beautiful woman, Rachel. You know, and the wedding takes place, and they play the wedding march. I'm dramatizing for effect, of course. And they march down the aisle, you know, and uh, the minister says, you may kiss the bride. And so now Jacob lifts the veil, and instead of Rachel, there's Leah. Have mercy. The deceiver had been deceived, because whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But anyway, 20 years later, when he was back, going back to his home, his brother was coming after him with 400 men to destroy him. And Jacob goes to a solitary place by the brook Jabbok, and he pours out his heart to God. And suddenly, someone comes and latches onto him and starts struggling with him, and he thinks it's an enemy. He doesn't realize that this is an angel. Actually, more than an angel, it's Jesus Christ, if you read the, read the passage carefully. Because Jacob later says, I've seen God face to face in my struggle. And so he struggles with this being all night. And he notices that this being has far too much strength to be a common, ordinary man. And in fact, when it's coming to the morning, the angel, Jesus, just 
basically touches his hip and it's dislocated. And then he knows really that he's, uh, <laughs> that he's in above his head. And the angel, by the way, when we say the angel, we're talking about Michael, the archangel. See, uh, the Bible does not teach that Jesus is an angel created by God, like many people believe. Jesus is eternal God. Michael is simply one of the names which is applied to Jesus. Because the name Michael means who is like God. His name is a challenge. Who is like God? And so Jacob is struggling. And uh, Michael, the archangel, says, let me go. And Jacob hangs on. He says, I'm not going to let you go. Let me go for the sunrises. I will not let you go until you bless me. You know, this is a symbol of what our prayer life should be. I will not let you go until you bless me. Another condition, according to Jesus, for answered prayer is to be willing to forgive other people. This is kind of hard, isn't it? Certain people that we don't want to forgive. You know what the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or as some versions say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now notice that God does not forgive us because we forgive others. God forgives us as we forgive others. Is there a difference? As we forgive, God forgives. If we do not forgive, then God does not forgive. You remember the story of the two debtors? There was a man who owed a huge amount of money. He couldn't pay. It's found in Matthew chapter 18. So the individual that he owed this to actually had embezzled all that money, said, throw him into prison until he pays it all. But he cried out he, he, to, to this man. He said, please give me time. I'll pay you. He could never pay him. Impossible. So the individual he owed the money to said, okay, I'll even do better. Your debt is forgiven. Oh, you can imagine. He goes away jumping for joy. His huge debt, which he could have never paid, had been forgiven. And as he goes out into the street, he finds somebody that owes him a little bit of money. A very payable debt. And he says, come to think of it, you owe me some money, don't you? And this person says, yes, I do. Well, pay me. Well, I don't have the money right now. Give me time. Time? The Bible says he grabbed him by the throat and he started choking him. And saying, pay me what you owe me. And he has him thrown into prison. Now the first individual who had forgiven the large debt heard about this. And what did he do? He took this man to whom he had forgiven a large debt. And he threw him in prison until he paid the whole debt. Now notice what it says in Matthew chapter 18. The lesson that Jesus wants to teach. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 35. At the conclusion of this parable, Matthew 18, verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his what? His trespasses. So we are, forgive, we are to forgive others' trespasses as God 
forgives us. Another condition for answered prayer is to pray with faith. You see, prayer and faith go hand in hand. Praying without any doubt. For example, in John chapter 11, let's go there for a moment. John chapter 11, and this is speaking about the resurrection of Lazarus. We'll talk more about this a little bit later on. Matthew, uh, excuse me, John chapter 11, and let's read verse 41. Here Jesus is praying to his Father. Jesus himself, the Lord. It says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now wait a minute. Jesus hadn't even resurrected Lazarus yet. And what does he say? Father, I thank you that what? That you have heard me. In other words, Jesus was so certain that God was going to answer his prayer that he considered Lazarus already resurrected even before he had resurrected him. In other words, prayer has to be linked with faith. Now let me say that there's a very big difference between faith and presumption. They're very different, but they also lie very close together. I'm sure you've stood on uh, train tracks, and as you look into the distance, the train tracks look like they become what? One. Well, the fact is that the track of faith and the track of presumption, they're two separate tracks, but as you look in the distance, they appear to be one. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever seen these documentaries where they show these Christian churches where people handle poisonous snakes? Oh, quite amazing, isn't it? Their whole church service revolves around grabbing poisonous snakes because the Bible says you will pick up a poisonous snake and it won't bite you. And yet many of them have died. There are other churches where they take cups of poison. Literally, and they drink poison. Because Jesus said in Mark 16, you will drink something deadly and it will not hurt you. There are people who refuse medical treatment. You've read about this, you've heard about this. Children who are refused medical treatment and they die because they say, I have faith, I have trust in God. Let me tell you folks, faith is claiming God's promises in obedience. Whereas presumption is claiming God's promises in disobedience. You remember the Lord Jesus when he was on the Mount of Temptation? The devil comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, jump! And then he quotes a promise. He says, God is going to send his angels that will pick you up in their arms before you hit the ground. Interesting. The devil was reading a Bible promise from Psalm 91. It was a real quotation from Psalm 91. The only problem is, God had not asked Jesus to jump to exhibit himself. To jump would mean to place himself in danger and to manipulate God into saving him unnecessarily. In other words, it would be claiming God's promises of protection while jumping off or disobeying the will of God. The same happens many times to us when we pray that God will help us pass a test when we haven't studied. The same happens to us when we develop lung cancer because we smoked all our lives. And we blame God for it. 
And so it happens every day of our lives where we presume upon the promises of God. We claim the promises of God in disobedience and we expect God to answer our pleas. The fact is, folks, that faith means claiming God's promises in obedience, whereas presumption means claiming God's promises in disobedience. God will not fulfill his promises with us when we disobey him. And so when we pray to God, we have to pray in faith, not doubting that God will fulfill his promise if we meet the conditions. Now another characteristic of prayers that are answered according to Jesus is that we should not ask for the wrong things. Jesus says, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. So, suppose I want a brand new Cadillac. So I say to the Lord, Lord, you know I drive this uh, old 1988 GMC van. I'm afraid it's going to break down one of these days. You know how much I need a new car. Lord, help me to win the lottery. Of course, I don't play the lottery. <laughs> Let me give you a better illustration. Help me win the publisher's clearinghouse. So that way you don't, have to, you don't have to gamble, see? Do you think God is going to answer a prayer such as that? No. Because we're praying for things that are not necessary, that are not needful to us. We need to be careful about asking for the wrong things. Kind of reminds me of Hezekiah in the Old Testament. The God said to him, it's time for you to die. He says, oh really? I don't want to die. The Lord says, believe me, it's the moment. He said, no way. I want to live. And he begged the Lord and he begged the Lord and he just went after the Lord so much that the Lord would not allow him to die that the Lord finally said, okay, I'm going to let you live. And he let him live 13 years more. And in those 13 years, Hezekiah did more evil than in the rest of the time that he ruled and he blew everything that he had done before. Because he insisted that God do things according to his will. He was asking for the wrong thing. Notice what it says in James chapter 4 and verse 3. And by the way, James was a brother of our Lord Jesus. And so I think he would know the heart of Jesus. James chapter 4 and verse 3. Here James says, You ask, and do not receive because you ask what? Amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. By the way, you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers came to arrest him and Peter took out his sword and Peter cut off the head of Malchus, the servant. Believe me, he wasn't trying to cut off his ear. It was, uh, he was aiming at his head, but he missed. Because Peter was a fisherman, he wasn't a soldier. So anyway, he cuts off the ear. And what does the Lord Jesus say to Peter? He says, Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could ask my father for 12 legions of angels and they would be here right at this minute to deliver me? But did Jesus ask for the 12 legions of angels? No, because he knew that it was the wrong thing to ask for because he had to suffer, he had to die for sin, so that all of us could be saved. Another characteristic of prayers that are answered, according to Jesus, and also the rest of Scripture, is that prayers should be mingled with thanksgiving. You know, God doesn't get tired of us asking, but we fill God's heart with joy 
when we thank Him for what He does. When we rejoice and praise Him for what He does. Let me just refer to some of these verses that we have on our list very quickly. John 11, verse 41, it says that Jesus thanks His Father that He has heard Him even before He resurrects Lazarus. Matthew 15, verse 36, before Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says He raises His eyes to heaven and He thanks His Father for the daily bread. In fact, the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus always thanked His Father for the daily bread. In fact, in the Last Supper, according to Luke 22, when Jesus was about to break the bread, He raised His hands and He gave thanks. Have you ever heard the word Eucharist? That's the word that some churches use to speak about the Lord's Supper. You know what the word Eucharist means? It actually comes from Matthew chapter 26. It means to give thanks. And so when Jesus broke the bread, he gave thanks. And then when he served the fruit of the vine, once again, he gave thanks to God. In other words, we should not only ask God, but we should also thank God. The Apostle Paul says that our prayers should be mingled with thanksgiving. Another condition for answered prayer, according to Jesus, is to abide in his will. Notice John chapter 15 and verse 7. John chapter 15 and verse 7. And now we come to a very, very important point in our study tonight. John 15 and verse 7. Here Jesus is speaking. He's talking about the vine and the branches. His words say, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. What is the condition for God doing what we ask? We must abide in Him and have His what? His Word abiding in us. Now let's notice the testimony of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22 on this same point. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22. This is a wonderful verse. The beloved disciple of Jesus says the following, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. So whatever He asks, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because of what? Because we keep His commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. In Psalm 66 and verse 18, the psalmist says that if we have iniquity in our hearts, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, God would not listen to us. Now what that means is that if I cherish sin in my heart, if I save sin in my heart, if I try to hide sin in my heart, the Bible says that God cannot hear my prayers. If I refuse to keep God's commandments out of love for him, in the text that we just read, it says that we will not receive what we ask. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9, it says that whoever turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer will be an abomination. So one of the conditions for answered prayer is to be willing to receive God's word, to do what's pleasing in the sight of God, to not save iniquity in the heart, but to confess our sins and to receive a clean heart from God. 
This reminds me of the book of Acts, if you'll go with me. It's not on your list, but let's go to Acts chapter 10 at verses 1 through 4. There was a very pious man. The name of this man was Cornelius. He was a Gentile. He was not a believer. And yet he was sincere. He had a hungry heart, a hungry soul. And he was praying that God would show him the light, that God would show him the truth. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 10 and verses 1 to 4. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. And do you know what he was praying for? He was praying for someone to come and show him the truth. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. And while God is doing this with Cornelius and giving this vision to Cornelius, God is giving Peter another vision because Peter now is going to show Cornelius the truth. The point that I want us to notice here is that when you're hungry and thirsty for God's truth, when you are sincere of heart, God will prepare the way for you to discover the truth and give you the opportunity of knowing the truth and accepting the truth into your heart. But we must be willing to please God. We must be willing to accept His will, to have His word abide in my heart, to have Him cast out sin from my heart. And then God will listen, and he will accept. The last condition that I would like to deal with as we speak about prayer is that in order for prayer to be heard, we must pray in the name of Jesus. You know, something that disturbs me today is that many people begin their prayer, prayers by praying to Jesus or by praying to the Holy Spirit when the Bible says that we should address our prayers to God the Father. And then when they end the prayer, many times they end abruptly. They simply say, Amen. And Jesus isn't even mentioned in the prayer. The fact is that Jesus made it very clear that in our prayers, we should always conclude our prayer in the name of Jesus. And the reason for this is that we are sinners. We cannot even come to the throne of God. Because God is a just God. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. And we're sinners. If we tried to go to the throne of God ourselves, representing ourselves, God would have to destroy us. There's no greater fool than a person who represents himself in a court of law. That's why we need Jesus, our advocate. 1 John 2.1 says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So when we pray, we end our prayer that we address to the Father by saying, in Jesus' name. And when the Father hears Jesus' name, he says, oh, there's merit in that name. There's perfection in that name. There's holiness in that name. The debt of sin has been paid in that name. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 6, we are accepted in the Beloved. And so we don't have to worry about what God thinks of us. We need to be concerned about what God thinks of Jesus, who is our substitute. In other words, Jesus is our representative before God. He's our ladder. And by the way, do you know the Bible teaches that
that the angels take our prayers to God and the angels bring answers back from God? Do you remember the, the dream of the ladder? The bottom of the ladder was planted on earth. And the top of the ladder reached to the highest heavens. And the Bible says that upon the ladder going up and down were what? Angels. The angels are the agents through which Jesus hears and answers prayer. That's why Hebrews says that they are ministering spirits. Isn't that marvelous? That there are millions and millions of angels doing God's bidding. And incidentally, this is the reason why also in the Hebrew sanctuary, there were two apartments, the holy and the most holy place. Now between the holy and the most holy place, the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God manifested his presence. It was a symbol of God's throne. And the veil that divided the holy from the most holy had angels embroidered. Angels going up and angels going down. And right in front of the curtain, before you went into the most holy place, there was what was known as the altar of incense. And what the high priest would do, he would go in and morning and evening, he would offer incense on that altar, burn sweet-smelling incense. And as he took the fire from the altar of sacrifice in the court, and he mixed in the incense and took it and placed it on that altar, the Bible says that the incense went up as a fragrant odor and went over the veil into the presence of God. It represented the prayers of the saints mingled with the incense of the merits of Jesus as a sweet odor to our Heavenly Father. And the reason why there are angels going up and down on the veil is because as the smoke went up with the incense, it's symbolizing the fact that the angels bear our prayers to God's presence in Jesus' holy and precious name. And so, folks, we don't have to be concerned about what God the Father feels of us. We need to be concerned about what the Father feels about Jesus. And the Father accepts Jesus fully and completely because Jesus has paid the debt of sin totally and completely. But do you know that the name of Jesus is not only powerful for us to come before God's presence, the name of Jesus is also powerful for us to be able to represent him before men. Now we don't have time to read all of the verses that we have in the last section here, but the name of Jesus is very powerful. Not only for us to approach the Father, but also for us to approach our fellow men. For example, you remember when David came against Goliath. David says, you come to me with a sword, and you come to me with a spear, and you come to me with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom you have blasphemed. And when he used the name of the Lord, Goliath was defeated. The name of the Lord is serious stuff. It's got power. When your life is right with Jesus, it not only has power for you to go before the Father and be accepted, when you go boldly through Jesus to the Father, but it also has power when it comes to representing Jesus among men. Another example from the Old Testament. You remember Elijah? The Bible says that Elijah had gone to heaven. Elijah told everybody, hey, Elijah is going to heaven. And some of the parents that were there, they started telling their kids, can you believe that preposterous idea of Elijah going to heaven? Come on. And they said to Elijah, come on, where did you hide him? What's this idea of God taking him to heaven? So they doubted the prophetic call of Elisha. One day, Elisha is walking down the road, and uh, there's 42 children who had been taught by their parents to dishonor 
the prophetic gift that God had given to Elisha. And they're crying out, Go up, thou bald head! You too go up, bald head! The Bible says that Elisha turned and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Who? Better to be blessed in the name of the Lord. The Bible says that two she-bears came out of the woods and tore into those children. And really the ones who were to blame were the parents because they had taught those children to dishonor God's prophet. There is power in the name of Jesus. See, the devil's a big bully. He likes to push us around. Of course, we're too weak for him. You know, the Lord didn't bless me with a brother. He blessed me with three sisters. And I love my three sisters. But, you know, I was at a disadvantage when I was in the schoolyard, when I was growing up in Caracas, Venezuela. Because, uh, you know, there were some ki little kids about my same size, but they had brothers who were big in school. And when a bully came and pushed them around, they would say, look, I'm too small for you. I can't do anything. But unless you leave me alone, I'll get my brother and he'll take care of you. And they would leave him alone. See, that's the way the devil is. He's a bully. But when we say, hey, I'm weaker than you are. You can push me around. But if you continue pushing me around, I'll sick my brother on you. And my brother is who? Jesus. You see, the name of Jesus gives us power of attorney. It's as if Jesus were on earth. And that's why when we use the name of Jesus, Satan has to flee. Because at the name of Jesus, the devil always flees. So when temptation comes, not only say it is written, but also say in the name of Jesus, who overcame you, who conquered you, depart from me. And he will have to leave. Because when you use Jesus' name, it's as if Jesus were here personally, because we have power of attorney in his name. I'd like to read one last text. Acts chapter 4. And I would like to read verse 7. Acts chapter 4 and verse 7. Notice the question that the rulers asked Peter. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? They just healed a paralytic. What does the name represent? Power. By what name or by what power? In other words, the name is power. Through the name of Jesus, we can be more than overcomers. So let's learn to pray to our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus. And we will gain victory after victory after victory and we will see tremendous spiritual growth in our life. Would you like me to pray now that the Lord will give you the courage and the remembrance to use the powerful name of Jesus and to meet the conditions so that God can answer your prayers? Is that your desire tonight? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this powerful weapon of prayer. But Lord, we realize that there are certain conditions that must be met according to Jesus in order for our prayers to be received in your sight. We ask, Lord, that you will help us to meet these conditions. Because in our sinful condition, we can't do it. We're too weak. The enemy is too strong. But that's why we ask that you will give us Jesus, because he's more powerful than the enemy. 
Lord, there might be somebody here this evening that is struggling with sinful habits, with sinful thoughts, with problems so great that they can't see a way out. I ask, Lord, that you will come close to them at this very moment and you will help them to learn to pray and to cry out to you and to persevere. I ask, Lord, that you will answer their prayers, that they might be able to form a personal relationship with Jesus. We know that Jesus is coming very, very soon, and we want to be ready. And so, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, make us ready and help us to have that day in and day out communion with our beloved Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you do take the time in your busy schedule, upholding the universe, to incline your ear to hear us puny little human beings. What an awesome privilege to speak with the ruler of the universe. We thank you for it. And we know that you have heard this prayer because we ask it in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.